When the ushers come forward, we're going to continue to worship the Lord with our offering. The Lord is worthy, amen? We, uh, we sing it, we say it, we live it. And that just is, is about saying He's the source of all love. He's the source of all joy. He's the source of all peace. He's the source of all life. He's the source of all that is good, that is true, and that is worthwhile. He's the source of it all. And to get one glimpse of Him, to, to just... Though you see through a glass darkly, just to get a glimpse of Him, as when we sing, you are high and lifted up and exalted. It's to know the meaning of your life, and it's to tap into the source of all that joy and all that beauty, praise God. So we ascribe worth. We're just saying what is true when we worship Him. We do the same thing with our offerings. We're saying, Lord, here's, here's, uh, worth, here's, here's what you're worth to us. It's a reflection of the priority that He has in our life. Uh, I want to pray for the offering, and I want to pray for this message that I'm going to give because I'm taking on a Goliath here. I feel like David with five stones in my pocket. Uh, but they're good stones, uh, but there's a Goliath there that we need to take on. So I need about uh, two dozen people over here praying for me on this side. A couple more, a couple more, a couple more. Okay, keep me covered. In the middle here, about two dozen people. Keep me covered. Keep me covered. Okay, good. Lock it in. Over here, about a dozen, two dozen people or so. A couple more, a couple more. Okay, keep it covered uh, to keep out any kind of spiritual garbage that the enemy might throw away to distort what is heard and distort what is said. We want the Word of God. Amen? Nothing but the Word of God, the whole Word of God. Praise God. So let's pray. Father, Lord, uh, I pray, Lord, first of all, we join together in praying for this offering, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that you would uh, guide us, uh, the leadership of the church, in using it wisely to the furthering of your kingdom, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that this is uh, seen, Lord, and experienced as a sacrifice of praise to you, Lord God, because you are worth more in our life than anything else that could, uh, could be, Lord. Lord, um, we pray, God, that your word would go forth here, Lord. I pray it would go forth straight, without any kind of delu- delusion, Lord God. I pray that, that, Lord, the area of our lives that I can't get to with words and that Norm can't get to with music, Lord, I pray that you'd get to. The center of our being that needs to be changed so that our priorities line up with your priorities, Lord. Use this word to let it happen, God. I I rest in the sufficiency of your spirit using whatever comes out to accomplish all that you will. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. John, last week, John Graves, great guy. I love that guy. He's a wild man for Jesus if ever there was one. Uh, he he uh, dealt with myth number eight, I'm told, so I can proceed right to myth number nine. And I just want to say that I appreciate that brother. Uh, he's, he's just something else. Uh, not only does he appreciate because of the content of what he says, uh, he packs a lot of content into a sermon, doesn't he? <laughs> Understatement of the century. But it, I also appreciate just the fact that, well, there are people, this is going to be hard to believe, but there are people out there I've heard who think that I'm hyper whatever, and that I talk a little too fast when I get excited. But next to John Graves, I look calm. Don't I sound so sedate and smooth? So he makes me look good in that respect, and I do appreciate the brother for that, and that's not easy to do. So I'm going to move on to myth number nine, and as I said, this one is a giant. Myth number nine is that... And this is all about vision, the vision of the church. And we're getting at the vision of the church by talking about misconceptions or myths that people believe about the church. Myth number nine is that spiritual churches don't talk about money. Real spiritual churches, the godly churches, the anointed churches, the Jesus churches, the ones that are not carnal, they do not talk about money. 
They just trust God, and, and God provides. And they don't need to ever talk about those sort of carnal, nasty stuff. Now, the minute I bring up money, I know there's a certain percentage of people in this room who all of a sudden are a little bit nervous, a little bit awkward. Do we really have to talk about this? We Americans kind of guard our wallet carefully. It's like, uh, you know, everyone's out to get a piece of it, and so we've got to protect it. You gotta, and, and so I, I bet, I don't know this, I don't know this, but I'm just speculating, that, that as I bring up the topic money, all of a sudden there's a certain percentage of people that, that are kind of like guarding their wallet, and they're maybe thinking things like this. Okay, now we know what he's really about. Uh, preachers are always after the dollar, you know. Yeah, they talk this Jesus stuff and they do this church stuff. But what they're really about, what churches are really about, is is, is this carnal mammon. Uh, they want the, they, they want money, and so there's all sorts of suspicions we get and paranoia that comes on when we start talking about money. And this is true of the culture in general. We're weird on money matters. How many of you? <laughs> I didn't do this the first two sermons, but I'm feeling a little bit loose right now. How many of you have uh, used to like used to like Pink Floyd, uh, Dark Side of the Moon? Okay, we got some. Oh, two hands. Yeah, man. <laughs> you remember that song, Money? Boom, 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 Money. So they say. And I don't remember any of the lyrics. Is it too or evil to repay? How's that go? Money. It's a. I know that it's a hit, Don't, if I'm not going to go there. Money, it's a gas. Oh, grab that cash register, both hands, and make a stash. But if you ask for a rise, it's no surprise they ain't giving none away. Well, the whole song, I'm butchering the thing terribly. Jesus, help him. Pray for my Pink Floyd memory to come back. What you ought to be doing is cast the spirit of Pink Floyd out of me. <laughs> but see, the money, the, the, the store, the song is all about money and the paranoia that people have about money. And it's true in our culture. You know, it's like uh, money separates friends. You can have great friendships, but when money issues come up, boy, things get really, really strained. We're awkward with the whole thing. It's just kind of a, a, a funky deal. And nowhere is that more true than in church. Now, people just have this kind of weird conception. And, and I, don't blame, I don't blame you for it. I mean, there's a lot of abuse that's gone on about money in church. You know, there, a lot of churches, they, they're preoccupied with money. All they do is talk about money. There are churches that every, ser- every service you have two sermons, one before the offering and one after the offering. You ever been to one of these? And so the, the one before the offering is always about money and they need to give and whatever. And a lot of churches use manipulative techniques and high-pressure techniques and even higher professional agencies to try to wring a little bit more out of people. And, man, that just sets up all sorts of buzzers uh, that, you know, about this whole thing in people's minds. And then you got the charlatans on TV who are trying to sell you, you know, Dirt from the Holy Land for $15 seed faith offering. And I, I saw a guy one time selling a piece of his tie that he was wearing during an anointed service. I'll give you, friends, today a clip of this God-anointed tie for a seed faith offering of $15. You can get a square inch of this anointed tie. Man, if people do that, I and mean, that's the saddest part, is that people buy into that. I got a thing one time from a guy who's now in prison. Uh, who uh, He was a, a famous... Uh, TV preacher who used to do this weird behavior. Anyways, some of you maybe know who I'm talking about. He sent out these targets to uh, hundreds of thousands of people. I got one of them. 
Actually, it wasn't sent to me. Someone gave it to me. It was sent to them. But it had here this like bullseye, and it had a little dart. And you were supposed to write your, the thing that you needed from the Lord on the target. And each one of these arrows had sort of a financial, or each one of these rings had, had a, uh, a financial amount in it. <laughs> I don't, it's weird. And you had to step back 20 paces in Jesus' name. And then in Jesus' name, throw the dart at the target. And wherever it landed, if you were willing to send him that much money, the promise he, he guaranteed you would come to pass. Oh, I rebuke you. And people make money doing this, you see. But then what happens is I see this kind of abuse and you see that kind of abuse. And so you get buzzers, you get protective mechanisms about this whole thing. And so some of us go to the opposite extreme and we say we never want to talk about money at all. It's unspiritual to talk about money. You know, don't even bring up the topic. And then, and then we can spiritualize this whole thing. We compartmentalize money away from all the other things in our life, and we make it a kind of a spiritual thing. You know, we are more spiritual because we, we just trust God. We don't ever bring up money. We don't ever talk about that kind of stuff. I, I think that I was actually guilty of this so about two years ago. I had all sorts of buzzers in my head about finances, partly from just the way I was raised in my family. We had weird stuff about money. Plus, I'd be going to church. My dad all the time was complaining about, church is all they're doing. They're only after money. I'm not going to give that priest another dime. Who does he think he is and all that kind of stuff. So I got mega buzzers in my brain about this. And so I tend to steer clear of the subject. If I ever brought up the subject, it was usually to sort of bash the abuse that's going on in the church because of it. But see, here's the thing that I learned about two years ago when we were uh, getting ready to do this building fund. I had all sorts of knots because I had to start talking about money and I didn't want to. And my stomach was just, oh. And the Lord just really set me free. Uh, really set me free. And one of the things I learned two years ago about this whole thing is this. You don't correct a problem by ignoring the problem, right? You don't correct false teaching by not giving any teaching, by steering clear of it. The way you correct a problem is by addressing the problem. And the way you correct false teaching is by giving right teaching. So precisely because there's so much abuse that goes on in the name of, of, of the church with regard to money, we need to talk about it. It is a spiritual issue. Some people, for example, have got buzzers about whenever you talk about holiness or whenever you talk about right living or sanctification. Some of us come from backgrounds where those words became nasty words because they were used to control our behavior. and All sorts of shaming stuff was put on us in order to get us to act a certain way. And so now whenever the preacher or anybody else brings up holiness or right living, we got buzzers and we start to blink our eyes because of shell shock and we don't want to hear about it. Well, the way to address that issue isn't to not talk about sanctification and holiness and right living, because it's in the Word. You've got to talk about it. The way to address that problem is not to avoid it, but to address it in the right way. Give the correct biblical teaching on it. Set people free from the buzzers and the triggers that they've got in their brains about this sort of thing. So that's what John did last week, for example, talking about how we need to go beyond just confessing the Lord and we need to live for the Lord and that comes from the inside out and it's all by God's grace and He transforms us and so on and so on and so on. Learn to do the right things for the right reasons and then you can, you can get rid of all those defense mechanisms we have because we've so often been used to getting to do the right things for the wrong reasons. It's the exact same thing when it comes to finances. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff, a lot of junk that's gone on in the name of the church, in the name of Christianity because of it, but that's all the more reason why we need to teach on it. We also need to teach on this in our culture, especially because this is one of the all-time great idols in our culture. This is a Goliath. This is a stronghold. This is one of the primary atmospheric pollutants in our culture. 
And you can't be in this culture without breathing some of those pollutants. We're all affected by it. Money is an incredible idol. Now, we sometimes think of idols as just sort of religious statues on someone's shelf. That's what idols are in most cultures. Idols are false gods that give people security and give people peace and, and, and give people some promises. Well, in our culture, we don't do religious idols very much. We do secular idols, but they accomplish the exact same things. What gives people peace in this culture? A sense of security, a sense of well-being, a sense of self-esteem, a sense of worthwhileness. It's money and the things that money can buy. Our culture worships it as a god. And most of our energy is spent trying to get more of it. And most of the priorities that govern the way we chase it are all wrong, which is all the more reason why we need to teach on it. Money is a spiritual issue. We like to compartmentalize it sometimes because, see, we're perfect slaves sometimes. A perfect slave is a person who's not only a slave, but likes being a slave. All right? And, and on this issue, a lot of Americans are slaves. And so we compartmentalize uh, uh, the money issue and we, and we separate it from the spiritual issues. That's just a way of quarantine, quarantining our idol, a way of protecting our idol. One way to know that you have an idol is if you start getting suspicious and paranoid and defensive when people start talking about it. Are you paranoid, suspicious, and defensive right now? <laughs> you see? It's like, don't, don't go there. Don't, don't, no. I know what you're really up to. I know what you're trying to do. We protect our sacred cows. We polish our sacred cows. We work for our sacred cows. And we don't like it when somebody starts threatening our sacred cows. All the more reason why we've got to go after this sacred cow. Money is a spiritual issue. Consider this. I'll give you two reasons why money is a spiritual issue. Number one, you're a minister. If you're a believer, you're a minister. You're as much a minister as me or anybody else. You're a minister. Your main calling, main purpose in life is to do the kingdom of God, to spread the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. Now, how do you do that? Well, you use your time to do that. You use your giftings to do that. You, you volunteer and do ministry to do that. But one of your main resources for doing that is money. That makes money a spiritual issue. Money is say-so. It's power to affect things. And one of the things we're called to do as kingdom people, the central thing we're called to do as kingdom people, is to use our say-so at a spiritual level and at a physical level to advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. What you do with your money is a spiritual matter, as spiritual as fasting, as spiritual as praying, as spiritual as Bible reading. It's a spiritual issue. It's your say-so. It's one of the tools you have as a minister to affect change in the world. Secondly, not only are you a, a, a minister, but money is one of the primary ways, one of the primary expressions of value or of worth in your life. One of the best ways to determine, to decide, to really get honest with yourself about what is valuable to you is not to ask yourself the question, what is valuable to you, because you know what you're supposed to say. It's to look at your life. Charles Pierce, a famous philosopher, said this, Belief, true belief, not verbal belief, but true belief is that upon which you're willing to act when acting counts. Do you act on it? That's a sign that you really believe it. Is it really worthwhile to you? So ask the question, do you act on 
the beliefs that you profess. And one of the ways to determine that is by looking at how you spend your money, how you spend your resources. You can always tell what something is worth to a person by looking at what they're willing to spend for it. Some people get really great houses, buy really great houses, but have lousy cars because houses have more valuable to them than, car than cars. Some people are the opposite. They'll live in a little garbage heap, but they like a nice car. And they'll spend a lot of money, all their money, in fact, for a car because that has worth to them, that has value to them. You know, people differ a lot on this. I just was down at a conference, spent a couple hundred dollars on books. Honey, I didn't tell you about that yet, but you'll, you'll get the credit card bill. <laughs> you know, because books have value to me. I have more value than cars or clothing or houses. I like books. When you buy a book, to me, that's like buying a chunk of someone's brain. And when you read the book, it's like, it's like you're, you're you know, eating their brain. You're getting, you know, their information. <sighs> But it has a lot of value to me. I love books, and so it's nothing for me to spend 100 or 200 $300 on, on books. Now, other people will look at that and go, what are you nuts? What are you crazy? You could have bought some new shoes with that. But see, I don't care about shoes. I like books. And so books are what we're going to buy. And people, it's amazing how different this is, but you can tell how worthwhile something is by what a person's willing to spend on it. Several years ago, I shared this, but a lot of you weren't here several years ago, so I'll share it again. When my wife and I first got married, we were dirt poor. I mean, really, really poor. But we needed to have some place to put our, our uh, uh, after we first got married, some place to put our two forks and two plates and two cups and, and, and napkins, uh, used napkins. And so we, we went out looking for a cabinet. Now, we thought we were going to sort of the flea market, junk market kind of part of town, looking, you know, walking down the street. We didn't know this area very well. It was in New Haven, Connecticut. And we walked into a store that looked like a good junk store where they're going to have cheap stuff. And I found a cabinet that was just about the right size. It had this weird fancy thing on top. And I, I said, you know, if I just lob that off, I, I bet um, uh, it would fit. And the lady who was selling it to me was, like, horrified. But, I, you know, I thought, oh, I'll make it fit. And it had 345 on it. That was the price. So I thought, well, you know, uh, we've got $5. I guess, I guess we could afford this. So I offered her $5 for this rather junky uh, sort of uh, cabinet. Now, how many of you here love antiques? Okay, I'm going to offend you right now, okay? So get, get ready. This should be nothing new. Stick around. I'll offend everybody sooner or later. But I offered her $5, and said, you, she said, you've got to be kidding. I said, no, I, I, I didn't mean you could keep the change. I want $1.55 back. <laughs> Money's tight. And she says, sir, I, you know, she's so insulted. This isn't $3.45. This is $345. And I was like, you... Get out, word. Get out of here. You, you got to be nuts for this piece of junk. Piece of junk. This was made in 1917 by so-and-so and with this kind of wood or whatever. And I said, well, that's all the more reason why it should be less than $3.45 because it's so old. You see, I don't know anything about antiques. I don't care about antiques. I don't get antiques. I don't know what the thing is with antiques. So to me, it was worth $3.45 if you lop the top off. Now, to other people, that would be worth $345. You know what something is worth to somebody by what they're willing to pay for, by what they're willing to sacrifice for it. You see, now, it, the same thing applies to the kingdom. To the kingdom, it's no different. To non-believers who don't have a vision for Jesus Christ and don't understand what this world's all about and don't see the value of, of eternal life, they live for the here and now. Kingdom stuff has no value to them. You know, a children's ministry has no value. An outreach ministry, a counseling ministry, seeing people become Christians and get saved, they don't even know what that really means. So it has no value to them, so they're not going to give anything towards it. It is to them what an antique is to me. 
But the question, and this is a spiritual question, if ever there was a spiritual question, the question that we've got to ask is this, what is it worth to us who believe? What value does it have to us? And this is a spiritual issue. What value does ministering to a thousand kids uh, a week uh, have to you? Uh, what value does uh, worship and proclamation have and outreach and, and counseling ministries and working in the homeless shelter and all those things that constitute the ministry of the kingdom of God? What worth does it have to us really? And to answer that question, we, don't, we shouldn't look at what we say because words are cheap. Look at what we do. And one of the things you look at in terms of what you do is this. What are you willing to spend for it? Belief is that upon which you're willing to act when acting counts. This is a spiritual issue. So I want to lay out here very briefly four biblical principles of stewardship. A way of assessing uh, our value system. A way of trying to free us from some of the pollutants in our culture uh, with this Goliath idol that we have. Looking at what the Bible says about principles of how we use our finances. This resource that we all have to do kingdom ministry. And Holy Spirit, I pray you just collapse the buzzers. Because this is about getting free, folks. Principle number one. Remember, all that we have has been given to us. All that we have has been given to us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He asks the Corinthians, do you have anything that you did not receive? Do you have anything that you did not receive? And the answer, of course, is no. All that you have, you have received. James says this in James 1. He says, every good gift, everybody say every. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. If you've got it and it's a gift, it came ultimately from the Father. Now, maybe you want to say, well, gosh, no, I, listen, I'm working 60 hours a week for this stuff. I'm putting in a lot of time. I work hard for my money. True, bravo, you should do that. But then again, who gave you the arms that you can work with and the legs that you can get to work with and the, and the mind that you can think with and the country where you have employment in? And there's a lot of people who would love to have that 60 hours a week and, and, and be able to, to, to do what you're doing. Yes, it's good that you're working for it. You know, that's a good thing. But ultimately, it is God. It is the grace of God and the blessing of God that, that, that uh, lets you the, gives you the opportunity to use your gifts uh, to do what you're doing. Everything we have comes from God. If we get this, it utterly reframes how we think about things. Now, when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, we surrender our life up to Jesus Christ, every part of our life up to Jesus Christ, which is why the Bible tells us to, while we can enjoy the gifts that God gives us, all right, and we'll talk more about that in a second, you can enjoy them, we're never to cling to them. We're not to grab hold of them. We're to live life with, with open palms. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 14, this is, this is as radical counterculture as you can possibly get. He says this, that um, anybody who owns any possessions or anybody who is not willing to give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Another, trans, another translation has, anyone who has any possessions cannot be my disciple. Now think about this. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Anybody who has any possessions, anyone who doesn't give up everything cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now here's what's weird. His disciples had things, didn't they? They had houses. He stayed at those houses when he would do his ministry. Some of them had boats. They had a fishing business. And Jesus never demanded that they give those up. So what's Jesus talking about? I think what he's talking about is an attitude of life. An attitude of life. And what he's saying is this. You got, you know, everything comes from God. It belongs to him. Don't own it. 
Use it, steward it, enjoy it, but don't grab hold of it. The thing is, is that when you grab hold of things, they grab hold of you. You think you are owning it, but it increasingly comes to own you. And in that is nothing but bondage, and in that is worry, in that is fear. But to live life with open palms, that's what Jesus is saying. Live as though you don't own it, because in truth you don't own it. You know, uh, uh, there's freedom in that, you see. You, 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 you live with the awareness that it doesn't belong to you. And so if the Lord gives it, He gives it. If, 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 if circumstances or the Lord take it, then you, then you take it. But you're not clinging to it, and therefore it's not clinging to you. Live free is what Jesus is saying. The question for the believer, if we really are thinking in biblical terms, the question for the believer should not be, how much of what I own does the Lord want me to give to Him? That's not the question. The question should rather be, how much of what the Lord owns does He want to give to me? Okay? How much of what the Lord owns that is within my power to influence does He want me to live off of? That's the biblical question. That question, if we live this way, if we think this way, it goes against everything our culture believes. It goes against everything our culture teaches. Because if our culture with its capitalism isn't about possessions, then what is it about? Everything about our culture is about getting more, grabbing on it, saying, mine, 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 like little toddlers fighting over stuff. It's mine, no, it's mine, 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 I want your mine. And it's, it's, it's possession stuff. It's, it's acquiring and grabbing hold of it and making sure that you got your fair share. And Jesus calls us to a radically, 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 radically different kind of lifestyle, living with open palms. Know that everything you have has been given to you. It is the gift of God. That's principle number one. That's the attitude we're to have. Principle number two. Equally countercultural, practice contentment and stay anchored in kingdom values. In First Timothy chapter six, Paul says that there's a great gain in godliness and contentment. It's a great gain. You want to gain in life? Learn how to be content and to just live godly. Why? For we brought nothing into this world, and we're not going to take anything out. But if you get if you get nothing else out of this message, if you get that little truth and live by that, you're going to be free. You came into this world with nothing. Bare butt naked. And that's exactly how you're going to leave here. You don't take any of it with you. So there's great gain in godliness and contentment. If we have food and clothing, if your basic needs are being met, then that is enough. Be content with that. People who seek, who crave more, who are greedy, they fall into all sorts of temptation, Paul says. They fall into entrapment. Why? For the love of money, that love of money, it's fun to enjoy. But if you love it, if you're clinging to it, it's clinging to you. And it's the root of all kinds of evil. Let me say a couple of things about this passage. Number one, our culture, again, and... I'm not a socialist or a communist here, folks. I'm a good American capitalist, Democrat, all that stuff. But here's the thing. Capitalism works, but it works because people are greedy. All right? And we've got to be able to see this true nature. Capitalism runs by keeping people discontented. If, if, if Americans ever got content with what they had, our, our economy would collapse in a split second. It thrives on people always wanting more, wanting it bigger, wanting it better, wanting it flashier, wanting it more comfortable, wanting it more convenient. Our, our, our whole economy runs on people thinking they never have enough. So we've got billions of commercials and other mechanisms in place to keep on convincing us that we never, never have enough. Our culture produces people who are systematically brainwashed into looking at the three percent of people who've got more than they've got rather than the 97 percent who've got less than they've got and conditioning us to want what the three percent have rather than being grateful for what the for what we have when the other 97 percent don't have it 
See what this whole thing is about? This, this teaching about learning how to be content, being satisfied, runs against the fundamental thrust of our culture. Yes, capitalism works. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's dangerous and we've got to be aware of that. Don't buy into the value system of that. Secondly, Paul in this passage teaches us to be content with what we've got. Don't be seeking to get more. Get rid of greed. The biggest idol that we've got in our culture. Secondly, the, the passage assumes that your basic needs are being met. There's nothing wrong with really wanting your basic needs to be met because that's a matter of survival. If you have food and if you have clothing and if you have shelter, then let that be enough. But that's an if. And one of the jobs of the church is to take care of the body of Christ to make sure that those ifs, those basic needs are being met. One of the reasons why we are <clears throat> investing a lot this, this year in the care ministry is because we're, we're, we're getting more and more people who don't have those basic needs being met. So Paul assumes that those basic needs are being met. What he's talking about is craving to have more than that, which leads to the third point I want to share with you. He doesn't say that it's wrong to have more than your basic needs. He doesn't say that that is sin in and of itself or anything like that. He says be content with what you've got, but he doesn't say that it's wrong to have more than that. He does say it's dangerous. Okay, the love of money is dangerous. You start grabbing onto it, it grabs hold of you. It's dangerous, but in and of itself, it is not wrong. In fact, the Bible says that, that it can be a blessing. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the, the author says that when God blesses a person with wealth and with possessions and, and, and is allowed to enjoy them, that is a gift. God created this world for us to enjoy it. And, and so you're actually, in that respect, living according to God's will when you're enjoying it. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of you know about the prayer of Jabez in First Chronicles chapter 4. How many of you have read the prayer of Jabez? Look at that. How many of you have read Satan and the Problem of Evil? <laughs> I'm <only> kidding. <laughs> Just trying to make a buck, that's all. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, the prayer of Jabez, it's a bestseller. It comes out of this passage. Jabez cried out to God saying, God, I want you to bless me. I want you to enlarge my territory. I want you to keep me from harm. And it said, God answered that prayer. There's nothing wrong with that prayer to say, God, bless my business. You know, cause it to prosper. Help me sell a lot of cars today or whatever your business might be. Nothing wrong with that at all. Don't turn it into sort of a magical formula where God becomes a genie in a bottle. And if you rub this prayer 70 times a day, you're going to get your wish. That's not what it's intended for. But as, I, as coming out of a relationship that's what you have with God. God loves to bless His people. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to guilt anybody out for having more than they need because I've got more than I need and I don't want to go around feeling guilty about it. But, 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 remember. Remember what the focus is to be. Remember what the purpose of life is all about. The thing about riches, and most of us in this congregation are by world standards rich, the thing about it is they can cause a delusion of the brain. You start grabbing onto it, it starts grabbing hold of you, and your priorities begin to change. You know, the thrust of your, your, your life begins to change. Here's a sobering statistic. The average church-going American gives about 2.5% of their income to churches and charity church and charity organizations, which is about double the national average, but still nothing to brag too much about, is it? That's less than we spend on food and videos, than on fast food chains, videos, and entertainment. You see, this is a, we've just got to look at that and say, what worth does the kingdom really have to us when we spend more, the average American anyway, spends more on fast food chains, uh, on, uh, on, on entertainment and videos than they do on, on the kingdom of God. Jesus says this. And in fact, studies show that while there are some wonderful exceptions to this rule, on the whole, the more people make, the less percent of it they give away. 
Why? Well, Paul tells us, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a magnetism about riches that can begin to just distort your thinking. It causes you to cling to it. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, seek, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Remember this, however much you're blessed, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put God first. Make God the first priority of your life, the purpose of your life. The central meaning of your existence is found in what the difference you can make for the kingdom of God. And as God blesses you, never forget that priority. Pagans chase after things, Jesus says, because they don't have a life uh, over and beyond that. The here and now is all they've got, so of course they're going to invest all their time and energy getting more for the here and now. Jesus says, don't do it that way. Trust God to bless you and add as much as he wants to add to you, but seek first the kingdom of God. And then he says this a couple verses later. He says, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where the moth and rust can corrupt it and where thieves can break in and steal it. Why would you invest all of your time in things that do not matter? Ultimately, but rather store up for yourself. Put aside like in a bank account things in heaven where moth and rust doesn't corrupt and where thieves can't break in and steal. You know, the thing is this. Here's the question to ask. In 100 years or 70 years or maybe it's 7 years or for all I know it's in 7 minutes, what are you going to take with you when you check out of here? What are you going to take with you? The car stays. The clothing stays. The cabin stays. The boat stays. Uh, all the conveniences we have stay. You enjoy them now, fine, but just know that you leave those behind. The one thing that you can invest in that never depreciates, it's never threatened, it never goes down, you're never going to lose it, is the stuff you do for the kingdom of God, praise God. And any smart person will invest in those kind of dividends. That's what Jesus is saying. Be wise about this. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says this in Mark chapter 10. There's nothing that you give up, whether it's house, whether it's family, whether it's fields, your employment, nothing that you sacrifice that's not going to come back on you a hundredfold. The wise person keeps the right priorities, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which leads to my third biblical principle, and this has to do with God's economic plan. God's economic plan. Here's, here's how he structured things. This is just a rule the way things run in this universe. God's plan is that He wants to bless you. He really does want to bless you. Partly for your enjoyment, but more fundamentally so that you can be a blessing to others and to the kingdom. And the principle is that the more you bless, the more you're going to get blessed. So the more you can bless, so the more you're going to get blessed. So the more you can bless, the more you're going to get blessed. And so on and so on and so on. It's God's ever-increasing uh, economic plan. He says this, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He first gives the negative version of the principle. He says, if you sow a little bit, you're going to reap a little bit. But if you sow a whole lot, you're going to reap a whole lot. Nothing too profound there, but it's amazing how, how often we don't apply this to the spiritual realm. If you sow a couple of seeds, you're going to get a couple of corns of stock. Stock of corn, whatever it is. But if you sow a lot of seeds, you're going to get a lot of corn. It just makes sense. So also know this in the spiritual realm. And money is a spiritual issue. The more you sow, the more you reap. Now the reason that's important is this. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The pr God wants to bless you. He really does. But the purpose of the blessing, the purpose of the blessing is so that you can abound in every good work. The Bible sees this as a privilege, as an opportunity. And the reason is because there is no joy like the joy of abounding in every good work. You know why I'm glad I'm rich? I'm rich. By global standards, I'm stinking rich. 
Uh, and you know, and, and it, you know the nice thing about that? Yeah, there's things I can enjoy. I got a nice shirt. I got really good tennis shoes. I'm, I'm happy about that. But I get to be more often than not on the giving end of things, and so do you. I get the opportunity to invest in stuff, to see the, 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 the dividends here and now and to have that return on me. I, I got to be a, a part of, of sharing in that, the opportunity of acquiring this building. And if I die tomorrow, the dividends of having this building and the people that get saved in this building and the growth that happens in the kingdom because, because of this building comes back on me, Jesus says, a hundredfold. What a great opportunity. I get to be blessed by knowing that a part of, my, part of what I give helps out with the children's ministry and the youth ministry and the youth center the family center that we're going to be going at and, and uh, the counseling center and, and all the other areas of ministry here when people are getting helped and they're getting healed and they're getting saved and they're getting transformed. I get to know that, that a part of what I could do is investing in that and the dividends come back on me. God loves to bless you, but the purpose for the blessing is not first and foremost so you can just have it all for yourself, but that you can turn around and invest it in the kingdom of God. And the more you invest, the more he blesses you and the more he blesses you, the more that he inv- the, the more that uh, uh, you're able to invest in others. That's the joy of giving. Jesus touches on the same principle. Sometimes people say, you know, gosh, I'll do that when I get a better job. I'll do that when I get a little more money. I'll do that when I financially arrive. But know this, you're in a culture that will convince you that you've never arrived. It's just the way it happens. And college students, I would encourage you right now, as poor as you probably are, to start practicing the principle of biblical giving. Jesus says this, he tells a parable where the master says to his servant, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, so now I'm going to make you in charge of a whole lot. That's the principle. It starts small. It starts small. You've got a dime, give a penny of it into the kingdom. See, God doesn't need your money. It's, it, 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 it's not, money's not the issue. Your heart is the issue. And he's just wired things such that the kingdom of God gets built through hearts that are in alignment with, with him. Start the principle now, and he will make you faithful over much. The final thing, the final principle is this. Giving is to be an act of loving discipleship. Giving is an act of loving discipleship. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each person should decide in their own heart what they want to give. Each person decide in their own heart what they want to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is foundational to all Christian giving. This is why manipulation and conniving and pressure are utterly, utterly out of place in the ministry. It's about your heart. God wants you to give because because you see worth in what you're doing. You see worth in the kingdom and you express it through your sacrifices. There's no room for manipulation, pulling teeth uh, in, in the body of Christ. The way ministry should go forward is just this. Here's something we believe God is is calling us to do. Here's what it will cost. Do you want to do it? Pray about it and go as God leads you. Each person should decide in their heart. And no one's in a position to judge someone else's heart on this whole thing. So it's got to be done uh, uh, out of the inner joy of the vision that you see. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, you excel in all things to the Corinthians, but I want you to excel. That means going beyond the necessary, excel in the gift of giving. I'm not commanding you, he says. I'm not going to try to use my apostolic authority to get you to do something you don't want to do. Rather, I want to find out what you want to do. I'm testing the sincerity of your love, he's saying. You see, he knows what Charles Peirce knows, and that's you, you know the worth that something has to a person by what they're willing to sacrifice for it. 
So he says, I'm t- testing the sincerity of your love. And then he reminds him of Jesus Christ. Here's the model to imitate. Here's the, here's the vision you should have about this whole thing. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he made himself poor so that you could become rich. Go thou and do likewise. You are rich. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And what you do with it is a demonstration of, of Paul says, the sincerity of your love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, last verse, Paul says this, important thing here. He says, on the first day of the week, he's telling the Corinthians about how to take up an offering. He says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money, as each person has decided in their heart, in keeping with his income, saving it up. Now, there's a couple points here. First of all, no, he says, each one, not just certain people, but each one. And that goes back to the point I, I, I gave earlier about how start when you have it small and trust God to put you in charge of more. But each one, this isn't just for the rich or just when we can get around to it. If your basic needs are being met, then it's time to start thinking about how you can invest in the kingdom of God. He says to um, each person should, should make this decision according to their income. Now this is interesting. Throughout the Bible, you have a pattern of tithing. 10%. In the Old Testament, uh, people were required by law to give 10% and then were told to give over and beyond that. But 10% was the minimum. 10% of their income had to go to, 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 to the ministry. Now, a lot of Christians today believe that that is still a good benchmark. Right, for my two cents, if I can't give 10% of my income to the work of the Lord uh, as the Lord leads me, then, then that, that's a, it tells me that something is a little bit skewed. Something's probably off. You know, uh, and, and so it may be a benchmark. But in the New Testament, it's not a law. Never is the tithing doctrine repeated as a law, like God's interested in a percentage. Rather, the principle we just saw is give according to your heart. Live with the awareness that it all belongs to God and obey God in how much of it you're supposed to keep for yourself and how much of it you're supposed to invest in the ministry. But it's all from the inside out. God isn't now into these percentage sorts of things. It may be a benchmark, but it's not a law. Give according to your income. And what Paul's saying there is this, that the more you have, the more you should be able to afford. And so it's a proportionate sort of thing. The Lord will direct you in your heart. And then Paul says this. It's a very important point. He says, do it on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, set aside a sum and save it up. In other words, don't touch it. Save it. Don't touch it. Now, why does he say on the first day of the week? It's because Paul knows what we all know, and that is by the sixth day of the week, the money's not there. Say amen. The money's gone. You know how it is. You, you, you get a sum of money and you think, oh, you have all these great intentions right after the pay period because you always feel rich after the pay period. You know, you always, the, the, the refrigerator's full and life is good, you know. But by the end of the month, they got paid weekly. A lot of us get paid monthly or bi-monthly, whatever it is. Paul says, take it off the top, in other words. Give God your best. Set it aside and don't touch it. Because what he knows, what we know is this. Life is an incredible money-sucking machine. It just sucks money right out of you, doesn't it? Do you ever feel like you're a walking, uh, one of these uh, cash machines? Especially if you have kids. Dad, can I have five? Dad, can I have 50? Dad, can I have four? It's like, it'll just pull a lever and money will come out. It's constantly, it's amazing. There's constantly money going out. If you don't make, this is why it's discipleship. Out of love, out of obedience to the Lord, you make a disciplined decision. Lord, here's what I believe you want from me. And you set it aside at the start and you don't touch it. As soon as you can, you get rid of it. You invest it in, in, in the kingdom of God because it's not there by the end of the week. The sad thing is this. 
Often is it not the case that we give God our leftovers? Not just financially, but in life. He gets the last three minutes of the day just as we're losing consciousness. Good night, Lord. And you know what? Thank God for that prayer. But it's better if you can pray when you're awake. Yeah. We give God the leftovers of our time. We give God the leftovers of our emotions often. You know, we're spent and he just kind of gets what's left over. We give God the leftover of our finances. And what does that say about the worth that the kingdom has to us? Throughout the Bible, the principle is you give God the first fruits. You give God your best because that says something about his worth to you. When we were in need, and we are in need. When we were lost, and we were lost. When we were separated from Him, and we were separated from Him. God didn't say, well, what, what, what kind of change do I have left over here? And do I have any extra angels hanging around? Hey, Joe, you're not doing anything. Will you go down and rescue these people? You know, there's an angel named Joe. I happen to know that up there. He didn't give us His leftover. He gave us His very, very best. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, He reminds us of Jesus Christ, who though He was rich... In glory, rich in splendor, rich in joy, was God Almighty, yet He made Himself poor. He became a man. He went to the cross and He died that we might be saved. God gave His very best. He gave the cream of the crop. He gave us His very innermost heart. He gave us all that He could possibly have given to us. Well, we were yet unworthy. Why? Because He saw worth in us. I, I have trouble understanding this, but He thought we were worth it while we were yet in sin. Here's what I'll pay for these losers. I'll give myself on the cross very, very best. And then he just turns around to his bride that he just purchased. And he says, will you love me like that? Will you love me like that? Can we get this love thing going here? Well, I'll give you my best and you give me my best. And we're, to, we're called to do that in every area of our life, but that does include our finances because finances is a spiritual issue. My prayer is that God would be leading us to be stewards the way he called us to be stewards, where we reflect in every area of our life, including our finances. The firstness of the kingdom of God. The first priority that he has in our life. Can we close our eyes? And I want to pray. And I want to ask this question because I, 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 I never know. The first two services, we had a number of people who weren't Christians and, and they, they, became, they gave their hearts to the Lord during the service. And so I want to ask, is there anybody here who, here I'm talking about surrendering your all to the Lord and you have not ever done that, surrendered your heart to him. And if you'd like to do that right now, I want to pray with you here. Would you just raise your hand? Can you turn on the lights so I can see around here a little bit? Just raise your hand, and I'd love to, to... We'll all pray this prayer together. I'm not going to call you out, but I just want you to have a chance to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Anybody here, you've never done that. Maybe you've been a churchgoer, but you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Just raise your hand. I'd like to lead you in this prayer. Anybody here at all? The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. And this is what this is about. Over there, amen. Praise God. One sister. Over there, a brother. Anybody else? Just raise your hand very quickly. I don't want to take too much time on this, but I do want to give everyone a chance. Sister, praise God. The angels are rejoicing. God is rejoicing. This is the time. Back there, sister, I see the hand. Amen. Holy Spirit be moving in this auditorium. Surrender to Jesus. What have you got to lose? You've got heaven to gain. Brother, in the middle there, I just don't feel like I'm, I see that hand. Praise God. Anybody else? Anybody else? This is how we all come to the Lord. It changes our eternal destiny. In the middle there, sister, praise God.
God, wonderful. <laughs> I just love, I just love this. This is my favorite part of the service. When people say, okay, I give up. Take me, Lord. Let's pray with these folks. You, folks who raise your hands, pray this as a, 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 like a, like a wedding vow out of the depths of your heart. We're going to pray it with you. This is the prayer that we all pray. And, and it, it, it begins our relationship with the Lord. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I confess that you are Lord, that you are God, and that you are King. And I know that you are holy and that I am a sinner in need of your grace. But I thank you that you loved me while I was yet a sinner. And I thank you that you see worth in me to the point of dying for me on the cross. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Wash me. Make me whole. And help me live for God the rest of my life. I surrender everything to you. Uh, Father, I want to pray for those who just prayed this prayer. Father, seal it in their hearts. Holy Spirit, confirm it in their spirits, Lord God. The devil hates what they just did, but Father, we're praying that you would protect them and start growing them into becoming fully devoted disciples of yours. And Father, I pray that for all of us, Lord, that you'd be working in our hearts as we go out of this place, Lord, that you would be forming in us kingdom values, kingdom priorities, kingdom convictions with kingdom passion and a kingdom love, Lord God. Do it in each one of us. Break the strongholds of idols in our, in our minds and in our hearts. Free us from the stronghold of our culture, Lord God, that we might live according to your word and not the word of the commercials, Lord. Let it be done. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say those who raise your hands, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. I want to welcome you to the kingdom. Wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. If you committed your life here this morning to Jesus, or if you're interested in doing so, please take a moment and stop back at the middle of the auditorium in the back. We've got some free literature that will really help you get started in this Christian life. You really need that. Would the prayer team come forward? And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd love to have prayed for, you need to have prayed for, I invite you to come forward, and these people will be glad to join with you in prayer. God bless you guys. Go and live out kingdom values. Amen.